Michael Glover Smith again. Thank you for being here. Thank you for having me back, Jake. Yeah, we're here to talk about your second film, Mercury in Retrograde. And then, uh, yeah, did you have any films specifically in mind, filmmakers uh, that not necessarily directly influenced, but anything that you were maybe going for, people who in some way influenced whether the story or this level of budget? Um, yes, I did, but it wasn't anything obvious, you know, um, it wasn't anything obvious at all. Like, I, I was really thinking a lot about um, Voyage to Italy, the, the Roberto Rossellini film. Like, I loved the idea that it was, you know, you had two people who had traveled far from home and um, were confronting each other for the first time in a long time because they were away from home. Like, that was really an exciting idea to me because I feel like, you know, that's something that I realized, you know, is that oftentimes people go on vacation because they want to have fun, but then it's like whatever problems are exist in their relationship sort of sometimes come to the surface uh, because, you know, you're, you're kind of facing each other in a way that maybe you don't at home because you have to work and you have other obligations. Mm-hmm. So that was kind of, yeah, Voyage to Italy was a big influence. Um, and then beyond that, like, a lot of people said to me that it reminded them of, you know, Hollywood comedies from the 1980s, including, you know, like, you know, National Vacation and films in that vein. Uh, but, like, a sort of austere, like, European art film version of a, of a 1980s vacation comedy. Because we do have some silly moments in there, like the whole, you know, disc golf thing is pretty broad. Um, and I wasn't consciously thinking of that, but I think there is something to that because I grew up in the 80s and I saw those movies like The Great Outdoors and Summer Rental uh, and Vacation, which I actually think is a great movie. And then um, when uh, Frank Ross was editing the film, he told me that his favorite movie of all time, or at least the film that had the biggest influence on him, was a movie called um, uh, Easy Money with Rodney Dangerfield and Joe Pesci. And I had never seen it. And I like while he was cutting um, Mercury, he, he kind of gave me his personal DVD. He's like, oh, you got to watch this, take this home. And I watched it and it was hilarious because I could see how it had influenced him because even though it's a pretty broad comedy, it had this, there was an authenticity to the Italian-American milieu in it that was really impressive. Like, there's a wedding scene in it that's so good. And I I remember saying, like, man, that wedding scene, and that kind of reminded me of the one at the beginning of The Godfather. And, you know, uh, I thought I was being kind of perverse by making that comparison, and Frank was like, no, it's better than The Godfather. (laughs) So, um, so, I mean, I think a little bit of that is in there as well. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Is there, I found this with doing films of my own, but do you sometimes find like going back after you, maybe when you're editing or when you're watching a film as it's finished, that you find you're like, oh, that 
reminds me of this other film that wasn't even a conscious influence. But. Yeah, that that does happen. Mm-hmm. Uh, that happens a lot because you know every, everything you see, every image you see, whether it's in a movie or whether it's a painting or a photograph or just looking at, at the world, mm-hmm. you know those images lodge themselves in your subconscious. Yeah. And yeah, that has happened where. Uh, I will usually what will happen is I'll rewatch a movie and I'll recognize that I, you know, composed a shot that was definitely influenced by something from that movie, but I, I literally was not aware of it in the moment. Yeah, it's so interesting. The library, I guess, again, like language, yeah, the film that you can find just from watching so much, it becomes. Yeah, an unconscious part. Exactly. Of your you know, I, I wish I could think of an example from Mercury mm-hmm. to um, to illustrate that point, but I, I can't. But I definitely did that with that short film at Last Okima. I stole mm-hmm. a shot subconsciously from Days of Heaven. Hmm. I re- there's a scene where a guy is um, in a closet listening to records, and it begins with a shot of the bottom of the door, you see the crack between the door and the floor and there's like light. Mm -hmm. Uh, You can see that there's a light on inside the closet. And, uh, you know, I remember maybe a year or two after we made that movie, I was watching Days of Heaven and it's like, I totally stole that. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's a weird difference, I think, between what gets talked about a lot more of, I don't know, Tarantino is the big one. Yeah. Like, oh, Pulp Fiction dances from oh yeah eight and a half but. well he he you know makes uh somebody used the phrase karaoke movies like he he's hyper aware of stealing yeah, yeah. you know mm-hmm. and um, i think uh yeah i, I don't want to talk about that too much but yeah, there's a whole yeah. debate you know mm-hmm. you could have about you know are you how how original are you are you yeah. being but you know if you can come it's like sampling in hip-hop or Mm -hmm. anything else it's like it depends on how you do it i mean you can take i mean everybody steals right and it's a question of like can you combine it in a way or you know there's a lazy way to do it i'll tell you an example of something that i think is lazy um and this is kind of a hot take uh francis ha Mm -hmm. the use of uh the david bowie song modern love i mean you've seen leos carax's uh bad blood right yes yeah yeah. i mean they stole that yeah and here's the thing if you're gonna reference something like that you should do it in a way where you're adding on to it and where or and or where the audience is aware of what you're doing but basically what they did was they just recreated it with the same song the same tracking shot the idea of someone running and dancing their way down the street and the people who are going to like that the most and, uh, who watch Francis Ha are going to be the people who never saw Bad Blood. Yeah. It's the kind of thing where if once you go back and you see the original, it's just like, oh, they just took it wholesale. Yeah. You know? Yeah. I think it's also 400 Blows. He uses some of the score from that. And yeah, he that uses the music, a yeah, lot of yeah. the music from that. Um, again, which I'm not crazy about. Yeah. Yeah. It is interesting. Yeah. Like you're, you're taking music that has its that has a very specific resonance mm-hmm. for cinephiles who know where that's from and you're yeah. you're kind of hijacking it you know, yeah. you're hijacking the emotional associations that people have but you're not doing it in a critical way or, or in an intelligent way it's mm-hmm. just like you're just stealing the vibe yeah 
yeah, building off yeah someone else's uh, decision, I guess. Yeah, yeah. But uh, yeah. Sorry, no. I didn't mean for no. this to turn into a, <laughs> a, a talking shit about Noah Baumbach no, no. Uh, conversation. <laughs> Not at all. It's uh, it's part of it. Yeah, it's uh, I mean, yeah, just from my own experience, anecdotally for the feature that I made going into it, I knew Edward Yang was a big influence in uh, yeah. composition, which of course it's, it's Edward Yang. He has a bunch of other stuff going on, but uh, I was saying EE a lot. Like that yeah. was like my talking point was one That's, of the references. That movie's the greatest. Oh, yeah, yeah, the yeah. best. But it was uh, like a few nights before shooting, the DP came up early uh, and we were like, oh, we should watch some stuff just to refresh our memories. And he was like, I'm not feeling <laughs> three hours long which is like fair but he hadn't seen a Taipei story yeah so we're like oh, okay we'll do that it's like similar wavelength uh it's still Edward Yang and watching that right before making I was like oh there's like some moments in here where I like subconsciously was like that's a little similar to what yeah. we're about to do uh, so yeah it's just something I find interesting yeah uh without the unconscious sampling if you will but, yeah uh so how did you go about getting this one up and running because i find that can be sometimes the hardest part like you can oh, write fairly man. easily but this film had a tortured yeah. genesis mm-hmm. um where basically you know i wrote the script it was gonna be set in north carolina then a former student of mine came to a screening of cool apocalypse and um i was talking about the next film i wanted to do in north carolina mm-hmm. and he approached me said uh hey you know i'm getting ready to turn 21 and i'm gonna inherit a bunch of money i'm gonna come into a bunch of money and i would love to help make this film and it was actually his idea that we shoot in michigan Hmm. because he said my family owns a lot of uh property there Hmm. and not only could i invest money but i could give up you know we could we have like this we have all this property on the lake and we have cabins there that the cast and crew could even stay in mm-hmm. uh, you could shoot in the lake house and then the cast and crew could stay there so that was kind of too good to pass up and i think that's when i first uh thought about you know changing the, the location of the script mm-hmm. and uh to make a long story short the guy totally flaked out on me which is not surprising considering he's 20 years old yeah uh, yeah he kind of after after meeting about it a few times and of course i was all gung-ho he kind of said uh, oh i've changed my mind i'm gonna do something else with my money (laughs) uh but by that point we had already hired a lot of the cast and crew because i was operating under under the assumption that we were gonna have a lot of money and um you know because he had sort of agreed to it verbally but not (laughs) not uh not financially yeah and so um, at that point, we had hired uh, Jason Chu, who was the great DP from Henry Gimble's birthday party. And um, I had hired some of the cast. I believe I'd hired uh, Shane Simmons um, to act in it. And Shane had production experience. So when this uh, kid sort of you know, withdrew his offer to invest, um, I remember turning to Shane and said, look, I know you're only signed up to act, but, you know, do you think you could help me produce this? Because I don't, you know, I need to find money and I, you know, I don't know where to begin. Mm-hmm. Um, 
And then I went down to Florida for a wedding to attend a friend's wedding. And then I ended up meeting someone down in Florida who became the primary investor and becoming he ended up becoming a producer on the film as well. So, you know, that was a fluke. But it also was, I think, a testament to how I was not willing to give up you know, it was kind of like everywhere I went, I was looking, you know, we were, I, I felt like we had enough momentum going in terms of the cast and crew that, you know, I, I believed I could still do it. And then I did it. Yeah. 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 Getting the momentum going is a, can be a huge driver once there's other people involved and yeah. uh, schedules going. So did you end up having to find more financing beyond this one? Yeah, and that ended up being a huge problem because um, what happened was eventually we hired some two actresses who were, you know, not native to Chicago or Illinois. I mean, we hired the great Roxanne Mosquito, who I had been a fan of in so many French films, including mm -hmm. Fat Girl, which she's the co-lead of, and um, Najara Townsend who had been in some indie films that I really liked. Um, first thing I ever saw her in was Me and You and Everyone We Know by Miranda July. And uh, she was kind of a little girl in that, but she had still, you know, she had acted into adulthood. And so I had offered two of the female roles to those actresses, and they were both living in Hollywood at the time. And they both agreed. And that was kind of mind-blowing to me, you know. Um, I sent them the script for Mercury. I sent them a link to Cool Apocalypse. I think I also sent them a link to Henry Gamble because of the involvement of Shane and, and Jason. And I kind of said, imagine this script with the production value of Henry Gamble. Mm -hmm. uh, and then look at my first film. Yeah. And so, you know, they, they were game to do it. Um, and then at that point, we still only had enough money to get through the shooting stage and I kind of remember saying to my producing partners look let's just shoot it we'll have all the footage in the can and then we can raise the rest later because um, you know once in potential investors see Roxanne's performance because she's a very intense performer um, and once they see Jason's beautiful cinematography uh, then it will be easy to raise the rest of the money and of course, it ended up being <laughs> the opposite of easy. Yeah. <laughs> because, you know, it was like impossible to raise money after we were done. And, you know, uh, the original investor um, who was also producing, Kevin, he ended up, you know, loaning money to the production. And I ended up kicking in some of my own money mm -hmm. um, at a certain point. Uh, and, and, you know, it was a nightmare because um, at that point, we had hired a and um, he had done sort of a rough draft of a, a theme um, mm -hmm. on a keyboard, um, which was lovely. Uh, and then we ended up not using him because it's like we just, you know, we didn't have enough to, to pay everyone. Yeah. Um, so it was a it was a very hard film to make. Yeah. And how did you, in as much detail as you can go into about? finding financier, financiers because I feel like that's a big mystery for people who are starting out at a micro yeah. budget like 
there's obviously the crowdfunding sources and if you luck into knowing meeting yeah. someone a family member unfortunately jake it's still a mystery yeah. to me. <laughs> in the year 2020. <laughs> no i mean you know it's like i'm going through that process right now you know i'm trying to make a movie for you know 35 grand which is low that's lower than it's considerably lower than both relative and uh mercury but it's what i need and it's what i think i can it's what i think i can raise yeah. um so no, you know, every time I every time I do this, uh, the money comes from somewhere else. You know, I'm just I've been lucky that I've been able to meet people who uh, are willing to, you know, uh, they're willing to look at what I've done in the past and, um, you know, are willing to to make that gamble. Yeah, yeah, no, it is gambling. I found is a very it, good. It's a good metaphor. Com- yeah, metaphor comparison for <laughs> because it's a, it's a high risk. Yeah, you know, everybody yeah. knows that. Um, so it helps. If you can find people who have money, uh, who are also into the arts, you know, who are who think it would be fun, yeah, and who know the risk involved, but who also uh, who like you and like your work, and um, you know, who want to be there for the premiere, who want to be on the red carpet. Um, there are a lot of people who want to do that, you yeah. know. And they think, okay, even if I'm not going to make all of my money back, you know, this might be a worthwhile adventure to go yeah. on, um, you know, to go on this this journey for the next year or two. Yeah. And is it something where you find you try to start off maybe getting, like, as much of the budget as possible, and then you're filling in with smaller contributions? Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what always happens, okay. you know, um, because after we got the one big chunk for Mercury, then yeah there were just like little yeah it comes in and dribs and drabs you know Mm -hmm. Um, and that's that's the way it's been ever since yeah and so is that coming in when you're meeting with certain people you have a specific dollar amount in mind that you're gonna ask for and you kind of know what you can get exactly that's exactly right okay yeah you know it is i think one of those things that doesn't really get talked about uh with like film schools no, you never learn yeah. that. Yeah. You know, <laughs> you know, you never learn uh, festival strategy, yeah. and you never learn fundraising. Yes. Like that's just uh, it's kind of a big you know mystery, like how that happens. Yeah, uh, yeah. You just learn how to shoot and edit. <laughs> yeah, you make your short, and then Warner Brothers comes along. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, well, yeah, and so with uh, obviously there's actors who you're familiar with their work already, you reached out to them, was this a case of you just directly reaching out saying if you're interested? Yeah, I mean, the, the casting process went on for a long time, you know, because we were, I, I wanted a mixture of local talent. I wanted people who were, uh, you know, kind of well-regarded in Chicago, and then I wanted, you know, some outsiders as well. Um, and, you know, we had, uh, this was also the first time I worked with Claire Cooney, who I've worked with many times since, um, not many times, but but every time since. Mm-hmm. And Claire was the casting director. And, you know, we cast uh, uh, an actress named Alana Arenas as uh, Golda. Mm-hmm. And Alana uh, is a Stefan Wolf Ensemble member. So the fact that I got someone, you know, that to me was as exciting as working with Roxanne mm-hmm. because you're a Steppenwolf ensemble member you're you're acting royalty in Chicago yeah so I thought you know I was really really happy 
with the cast, I was able to assemble. Jack Duell, um, you know, who's a somewhat well-known director in his own right, uh, ended up playing the role of Jack, and Claire also, you know, brought him, got him to submit a self-tape to audition, and uh, and then Kevin, of course, was the the holdover from Cool Apocalypse. Like, I I really enjoyed working with him, and I felt like I knew. There was I could do something different with him. You know, I wanted him to play a different kind of character, and I wanted to push him out of his comfort zone and mm-hmm. get him to do something different. And uh, and then that was you know I thought pretty fruitful. Yeah, know? yeah, he's so great in all your films. Uh, that he's yeah, he's in the first three. Yeah, first yeah. three. Yeah, <laughs> I remember I see a seeing relative just waiting for waiting for him to pop. He was up. yeah. Like the, <laughs> the problem is he lives in uh, Alabama. Now. Uh, yeah. So, uh, you know, I, I'd love to work with him again, but mm-hmm. it's, it's hard to fly people in. Yeah, yeah, yeah absolutely. Uh, and so, yeah, like, what was the rest of the pre-production uh, process like of, like, setting a schedule? I, this one sounds like it was shot all together in a block. It was shot. To, and it had to be done yeah. that way. Um, pre-production was lengthier because, of course, we had to travel to Michigan to do location scouting. Mm-hmm. So we went there a couple times, and the first time we went, we weren't even sure where we were going to shoot. You know, we kind of, we looked at another house, which was, I don't, I honestly can't remember if it was in Michigan or Indiana, but uh, somebody on the crew had a friend who had a house who was willing to let us shoot there. And we went there, and it wasn't quite right. Um, and I had looked at a lot of homes online, and I think it was the same trip where we where we went to the house in Michigan that we ended up shooting in uh, because I had I I had fallen in love with it based mm-hmm. on the photographs that I saw online, and so um, and then after we negotiated with the owners of the home to shoot there, then we had to go back because I hired a production designer and I needed her to see it, you mm-hmm. know, um, and to see all of the other locations because, uh, you know, we had found sort of the, you know, the disc golf course and the coffee shop and, you know, we needed to kind of look at all those spaces and talk about kind of how we were going to do it and to kind of talk and the cinematographer as well. He was, uh, I think he was with us. Yeah, he was with us on both of those trips. And we took a lot of photographs, too, yeah. in order to see what it looked like and see what the light looked like and all that. Yeah. Was that... What made you choose the house that you did? Was it the light and the options? It was... It, it just... Uh, it's the kind of... It's like casting an actor. You know, like, sometimes you can't put into words exactly what you're looking for, but then, you know, you know it when you see it. Yeah. And I think part of it was um, I had written a line of dialogue into the script where um, Najara's character sees the house for the first time and she says, oh my God, this is like a fairy tale. And, you know, that first house I was talking to you about in Indiana, like that line, we would have had to cut it if we had shot there because even though it was a house on the lake, it just looked like a house on the lake. And when I saw the one in Benfield, Michigan, it looked like something out of a fairy tale. Mm. The name of that house, by the way, is Fern Hollow. If anyone really? 
walks to rent it from Fenville. It's so beautiful. Yeah, it's gorgeous. You know, it's so it's it's such a beautiful part of the country. It had everything you needed. It was a short walk to the lake. So here's the other thing about locations. It's like when I wrote it, it was written so that the lake was visible from the house. Like the house overlooked the lake. And then when I found Fern Hollow, the lake was a short walk. You had to walk through the woods to get to the lake. So um, even though it wasn't identical to the way it was described in the script, it was perfect enough in other ways that I was happy to make a few adjustments. Yeah. You know, I always try and find, as a, as a director, I'm obsessed with location, and I always try and find locations that are perfect for the way that the script is written and sometimes it takes some searching yeah and then um and then once you find the place that you know you're going to use like i never settle you know i never feel like i'm settling on something some place that's boring that uh with the possible exception of my apartment in mm-hmm. Buckley. but like i i always i never settle for what i can what i'm what someone's willing to let me use you know it's like i always want it to look right yeah and that cabin in uh in in fenville to me was a magical place um the way that it was surrounded by those really tall trees and the the leaves provided a kind of canopy so that the sunlight there were shafts of light that shone through those leaves uh it just feels good to be there yeah and um and i thought it would be kind of like an appropriate setting for the drama yeah and you have the other locations were those all physically nearby of like the bar the dive bar and the uh (laughs) so here's the dirty secret Mm -hmm. the interior of the dive bar was in Chicago. That's a magic oh, really? part. Yeah, wow. <laughs> it's the magic, magic of yeah. cinema, baby. <laughs> so yeah, uh, we we that's that that's a bar that no longer exists called the Red Line Tap. Mm-hmm. So um, the total shooting schedule for Mercury was twelve days. Mm-hmm. We shot two days in Chicago, which is all the stuff you see in the beginning of the film, yep, yep. Uh, and a little bit at the end. Yeah, and then we shot eight days in Michigan with the day off in the middle. And then uh, we came back to Chicago and shot two more days in the final two days were the interior of the bar, which is set in Michigan. Okay. Yeah. That's, yeah, that's so interesting. Was it, wasn't that just like you decided on that place? You couldn't find anywhere nearby physically or? Um, I, you know, I can't remember why. I, you know, I can't, I think, I think it was a similar thing where that particular bar was perfect mm-hmm. for for what I needed, and they were willing to give it up. Yeah. Um, so, and also, you know, I think it was kind of it also saved us a little bit of money because we were putting up the entire cast and crew in a hotel room, mm-hmm. and so a lot of the you know the entire crew they were all native to Chicago, so yeah. everyone got to stay at home during the days when we shot in the city. Yeah, yeah. Have a little bit of a budget saver as well as getting exactly. one other location. Yeah. And so how did you go about building this crew? Uh, you had seen Henry Gamble for 
uh, Jason from Baltimore. Yeah, he was yeah. the first person I hired, and then after that, I you know I brought back um, I brought back uh, our costume person Delina was from uh, Cool Apocalypse, okay. so I brought her back. Um, our uh, you know uh, our sound crew came from one of the producers. He had worked with them before in a commercial context. And so it was just kind of like me, Shane and Kevin were the three producers and we all ended up bringing people on board. So they kind of came from all over. Okay. Yeah. And uh, Frank P. Ross is a, obviously a filmmaker in his own right. Is that... Yeah, I'm a big fan of Frank and he was actually Shane's idea. Okay. Uh, because I I don't think they had worked together, but they I think they knew each other socially. Okay. And I thought that was a really inspired idea. Yeah. You know, as soon as Shane suggested that, I thought that's brilliant. Mm -hmm. You know, because Frank's movies are very character driven. Um, I think his films are different than mine. I think they're more realistic, mm -hmm. but they're also looser. Yeah. But they're all but they you know, they are character driven. So even though we were different as directors, I knew that I remember thinking yeah, this guy's not going to be, he's not going to cut everything down. You know? He's not going to say, oh, you don't need this and you don't need that. Because yeah. you look at his films and there's tons of stuff in there that you don't need narratively. And so that was, yeah, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. You know, working with Frank, there were many days where I would go out to his place in the suburbs. And, you know, I, again, I think he kind of did a rough cut without me. And then I went out there and, we worked together and then once we did that a few times um we got it to a place where we felt like it was it was in good enough shape to show to the other two producers mm -hmm. and then they saw it they gave feedback and then we continued to refine it and then we had a rough cut screening for uh an audience at columbia college mm -hmm. now that was something I, that was new to me yeah, uh, but they wanted to do it because there were um, some serious debates about like how much to cut. Mm. You know, like the original rough cut was two hours, I think two hours and four minutes. Wow. And you know, I think uh, I was the only one who was pushing for it to be long. <laughs> <laughs> and um, and there were also some questions about how to structure the film because it begins with that long take circular tracking shot which was not the first scene that i wrote in the script that scene took place that scene fell where it takes place chronologically like it the, the original script began in chicago but while actually as soon as we were done shooting i had the idea because i knew that that opening shot was such it was such a virtuoso shot that um I kind of thought that might be an interesting way to begin the movie. And then we flash back yeah. to Chicago. So like we kind of uh, eavesdrop on these people and you're kind of throwing a lot at the audience because it's like, you don't know who these six people are, but they're all talking and there's a lot of mystery. Um, and, and, and the fact that the camera is kind of circling around them in a way that I think feels almost ominous. Mm -hmm. I just thought that would be a cool way to begin the movie. Um, so I actually told Frank, even before he started cutting it, that was like one of my suggestions was try putting that first. Mm -hmm. And he did. 
But then one of the two producers saw it and said, wait, wait, wait a minute. This isn't supposed to be here, you know? And um, so that was one of the things that we, you know, we wanted to ask uh, test audience, like, does this work? Mm-hmm. Were you confused? You know, did, did that, you know, do you think this is an effective way to begin the movie? And believe it or not, you know, everybody who saw it liked the fact that it began that way. And some people even said, that's, you know, my favorite part of the movie. You know, I love that it began that way. So um, even though I was kind of scared of having a test audience, that ended up being helpful. Yeah. And did you obviously bring in a test audience cast and crew from not just very locally within Chicago. Did do you find yourself feeling the pressure kind of daily of there's more of a budget to this, there's more responsibility yeah. to make it Yeah. Successful? I mean that was the making that film was really the darkest period of my life. Yeah. And that's a big part of the reason why. But, you know, I should point out I was putting the pressure on myself. Yeah. You know, because uh, I felt like this movie needed to be successful mm-hmm. given the fact that I was able to raise more money and that I was able to hire people who were successful, yeah. people who had a reputation. And I thought, you know, I'm going to feel like a failure if this movie isn't successful. Yeah. So that pressure didn't exist at all during Cool Apocalypse. Mm-hmm. And then all of a sudden I was in like a new arena, you know, um, and I was putting pressure on myself. And uh, I've told the story many times in interviews, but, you know, it was like, when we were done, there was a period where I said to everybody, I'm not going to do this again. It's too hard. And then I, and then I changed my mind, you know, minutes later, I'm like, wait a minute, I need to do it again right now. (laughs) And then that's kind of how my third film was born because I thought, uh, I'm going to do this on a much smaller scale on a much lower budget, but everything is going to be decided in advance. And, um, you know, not to talk too much about that movie right now, but like, I want, you know, we're going to do this in eight days and we're going to race through post-production. We're going to make sure we, ha- even though the budget is small, we're going to make sure we have everything we need to get it done quickly. Yeah. And then we're going to premiere quickly. Mm-hmm. And then uh, the fact that I was able to do that, stick to that schedule was very gratifying. Yeah. It kind of exercised the demons for me yeah. of uh, Mercury and retrograde. Yeah. So did you have like a pretty strict post-production schedule? Like how did it work turning around from production into post on Mercury? Mercury? Yeah. Oh, it dragged on forever. Okay. No, that was the problem is because we didn't have the money. Mm-hmm. Um, the editing, the editing went pretty quick, you know, um, because there wasn't a whole lot, you know, for Frank to do. I mean, um, and but once he was done, you know, it was it was paying for the, the colorist and paying for the, the sound mix. That's what we didn't have money for. And paying for the score. That's what we didn't have money for. And um, I, you know, that's we were showing it to people hoping to raise money for that. And that's what went on forever was that process of submitting to festivals, telling them. Color's not done, sound's not done, score's not done. And we had temp music in there. 
and then just getting rejected from festival after festival and and then showing it to potential investors and then not hearing back mm-hmm. uh, and that dragged on for a long time yeah uh, but in the end you know the colorist we hired company three did an incredible job you look at the color and the contrast in that it's you know still uh, I think my best looking film from the point of view of color grading. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, like very technical level. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, it's it's next level. Yeah. You know? And and they cut us a deal. Mm-hmm. You know, they uh, had a relationship with Jason and, and they liked the film. Yeah. You know, and they were willing to to work with us. So um so you know, I'm very grateful to all of my collaborators because they were able to, you know, everybody kind of you know, wanted it to be good, and they all uh, chipped in. And you know, I I am proud of the end result. It's yeah. just that it was very painful to get there. Yeah, yeah, no, it sounds like it must have been. And I also should point out, we did end up cutting more. Mm-hmm. You know, it's it's the kind of it's kind of the nightmare scenario where you say pictures locked, yeah. and then after you get rejected by those first few festivals you start to second guess Mm -hmm. and you know and then that's when i said wait a minute we can tighten up the beginning you know and it's it became a matter you know uh became a matter of like uh, how much more can we lose you know i started to come around to the point of view of my co-producers like yeah i think it can be a little shorter a little tighter yeah especially in the beginning because the thing about that movie is um it's a slow burn narrative Mm -hmm. and it's written that way on paper like we wrote it that way, we shot it that way. You could feel the slow burn quality. You could feel it on the page. You could feel it in the room when we were shooting it. You could feel it when we were cutting it. You know, and there's not much else to cut away to. You know, um, but I remember feeling like you know the ending of that movie is what people remember. That's what people like about that film. And I remember feeling like. If anything, we have to cut down the beginning in order to get to the real meat and potatoes quicker, mm-hmm. you know, because I remember feeling, oh, I think people are getting bored yeah. uh, because they don't know where it's going. Mm-hmm. And even though I tried to create foreshadowing, you know, I tried to like uh, drop some ominous hints early on that there was some drama coming. I think a lot of people were like, why am I watching this? You know, I don't know who this director is. Mm-hmm. And I started feeling like if we can, you know, chip away the beginning um, uh, and just get get to the ending quicker, um, we'll we'll stay, we'll have a better chance. Yeah. And so that that was a lesson that I learned when it came to the next couple films was mm-hmm. like uh, make the dramatic, you know. And by the way, I should also point out I think Mercury in retrograde works. I mean, I think that foreshadowing is there, mm-hmm. um, but when you're and a, a filmmaker who's not well known, you know, people who don't know you are not going to give you the benefit of the doubt. Yeah. You know, it's like pe- when people watch a film by David Lynch, they give him every benefit of the yeah. doubt, right? Or Paul Thomas Anderson, mm-hmm. right? It's like it doesn't matter how slow or weird yeah. or dark or anything your film is, how unlikable the characters are. People are just like they're they're you know, uh, you've built up some goodwill, mm-hmm. and people are willing to go there. Um, you know, but of course, when you're uh, a no budget filmmaker or a low budget filmmaker, uh, people aren't always sure that the slow pace is intentional. 
right? Yeah, yeah. And, you know, it's like, I think a lot of people thought that I was trying to make something like the big chill, uh, you know, like a ensemble, you know, dramedy about couples and that I accidentally made it boring, you know, like that I, I was trying to make something fast paced, but I, I didn't have the skill and it came out slow, but the slow pace was intentional. Yeah. So anyway, what I learned was it's probably better to make the stakes more obvious early on. Um, just so you can hook the viewer, you know? Yeah. And I remember, especially when I was writing Relative, there's a line of die. Claire Cooney's first line, which is in the first five minutes of the movie, she goes, I want to die. <laughs> and I just remember thinking like, uh, you know, I knew the, the big fireworks in her storyline were gonna, were gonna come at the end. Yeah. Because again, it's like, Relative is sort of a mirror image of Mercury. They're both ensemble films that take place over a weekend, you know? And I remember thinking, let's just let's just have her say this yeah. <laughs> at the beginning, and then uh, you know people will, will be they will be absolutely certain of uh, the fact that you know this is a powder keg that's going to explode. Yeah, yeah. Some dramatic <laughs> instead of taken by surprise. Yeah. So, how much do you think the struggle with financiers was? Uh, do you think there was anything related to not having like that final? sound mix and coloring was turning people off or was um, it length? I, I don't, <laughs> you know, but you never know. Yeah. You're never sure. You know, the festivals always say like, oh yeah, we're used to watching works in progress. Just send it to us, <laughs> you know, but you'll never know what they would have thought had they seen the finished version. Yeah. And I think the same thing with investors. It's like, um, you know, uh, and for this reason, you know, whenever I'm cutting a movie, I always mix the sound while editing. Yeah. And I'm amazed when people show me a rough cut and they leave the sound so rough mm -hmm. because I always, it takes me out of it. Yeah, yeah. You know, it's like, you just want my feedback. My feedback is start mixing the sound now, mm -hmm. even if it's temp. Like, I know you're going to pass it along to someone else who's going to do the final thing but like you know when when there's a very jarring uh sound presence change from one shot to the next mm -hmm. it makes the it makes the picture edit jarring yeah. to me do you know what i mean mm -hmm. so it's like um so yeah i hope that answers your question yeah no it does <laughs> i know yeah it's something we've talked about in the past yeah it's, yeah uh I think it's yeah, something that probably doesn't get highlighted as much of like really if you need to put your money somewhere between like sound and camera yeah. you can make more uh, kind of like what we were talking about with your first movie is you can use the smallness of the story like use the digital element for your camera more but the sound is really vital to keeping people invested yeah and it's funny um, that you say that because you know Pool Apocalypse is the only film I've ever made where I did ADR Mm, yeah. yeah because it was so necessary you know there was one day where we shot and there was like a sound there was like a sound problem mm -hmm. you know where you could hear sort of a white noise you know it was like a microphone cable problem yeah and uh it just was not acceptable mm -hmm. and and nobody realized it until we were editing yeah. and then it became a question of like all right what do we do 
Like yeah. reshooting is not really an option. So we got all the actors together in front of a big computer monitor and did a little rigged, you know, kind of Jerry rigged little sound studio yeah. and and you know had them dub their lines for mm-hmm. for you know a couple scenes. Yeah. Yeah. Several scenes. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to see the only time. Just every other film you've had, it's been on location. Yeah, and also, I like location sound. You know, I mean, Mercury Retrograde is a great example because there's so much, there's so much noise Mm -hmm. in that location uh, that is, that that gives um, the location, it's just part of the, it's part of the character of the film. You know, um, I mean, Notably in that movie, um, it rains during the climax while the characters are on the porch. Well, that was that was not something we planned for, mm-hmm. uh, but the sound of the rain is crucial. You know, like you can't pretend like it's not there. You just have to go with it, and yet it creates the right atmosphere. You mm-hmm. know, because this is the darkest part of the film, so that ended up being um, a blessing. And you know, what's really funny about the rain is we actually had that. Because we shot that scene over a span of 10 hours or whatever. We shot all night long. Mm-hmm. You know, there were times where the rain let up and it stopped. So we added more rain sound to make it consistent. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I'm sure you've seen McCabe and Mrs. Miller, right? Yes, yeah. So, you know, they added like, uh, it's uh, the famous story about that movie is it, it snowed during the climax when it wasn't supposed to. Yeah. And, um, there were some shots where there was no snow, so he added as an optical effect. He added, you know, yeah. he added snow, and we kind of did that with the rain. Yeah, but you know, it's like when you're in nature, there's all sorts of birds, and mm-hmm. you know, just trees creaking and really interesting noises, and uh, and I love that stuff. You know, I'm the kind of person who never, you know, I I never want to take that out. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm always amazed when the sound. You know, the sound re-recordist is like, do you want to remove the sound of this actor smacking their lips? Yeah. I always am like, no. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> yeah it adds so much more to the yeah. realism. If you can go definitely too far in the other direction. Exactly. Yeah, why is this for sound? Yeah. yeah, like just some woods. Um, but, you know, it depends yeah. on what kind of movie you're making. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so with finishing this one up, you with your experience of submitting, getting accepted to festivals, were you able to use some of that knowledge, experience, going into submitting for this one with like where you submitted and what you're focusing on? Uh, just what was the festival experience like? For you? Um, well, we we premiered at Full Bloom, which had also played uh, Cool Apocalypse, and Full Bloom, you know, gave us a red carpet premiere, and so that was you know that was a lot of fun. Um, it wasn't the festival that I had dreamed of for that particular film. Yeah. But it was me, both of my producing partners, one of whom was an actor, and then one of the other actors came. And it was a great experience, you know. Um, uh, and then that was the first of uh, just a few festival screenings, you know. I, for that particular film, I only submitted to bigger festivals mm-hmm. and uh, kind of medium to big festivals. And, uh, you know, we got rejected by a lot so i think it actually played fewer festivals than my first film um simply because i was aiming higher um and yet this is still a story with a happy ending because the one thing 
I did that I think was smart in the long run was I did not make it available to stream. Uh, and, you know, we had some theatrical screenings in commercial theaters where, you know, we did well in Chicago um, and in Michigan. Mm-hmm. There, we, we screened in Saugatuck um, at a theater close to where we filmed the movie. And that went over like gangbusters. There was like 310 people in this theater. Um, none of whom I knew, you know, but they just wanted to see something that had been shot in their town. Yeah. So that was incredible. And then we eventually, after a year plus, you know, to maybe two years, almost two years later, we screened in Los Angeles. We were programmed by Rooftop Cinema Club. And shortly before that, we were programmed by a theater in Brooklyn. So uh, I was there for both of those screenings. And that was really, really great, you know. And I remember thinking, oh, God, this wouldn't happen. Wouldn't have happened if we had we had kind of dumped it online. Yeah. We had just made it available on Amazon. Um, and the, the, the Hollywood screening was great because Roxanne came out and did the Q&A uh, with mm-hmm. us. So um, that was a lot of fun. Yeah. And then getting into distributing it eventually once the festival run is over. Yeah, so the interesting thing was we self-distributed it on uh, on streaming. Mm-hmm. You know, we, we put it on Amazon ourselves uh, and, a, and a Vimeo, and I think uh, made it available as a rental on Vimeo, and I think maybe just those two at first. And then, um, then Music Box reached out to me when the pandemic hit. And they kind of said, do you want to do something with us? Because, you know, early 2020, every theater was trying to figure out a way to um, make things available to stream Mm -hmm. through their website. And I said, yeah, uh, do you want to, you know, take a crack at, uh, you know, making Mercury and Retrograde available? And that was available to stream on Amazon Mm -hmm. at the time. But Music Box direct their own you know streaming service they were willing to do it simultaneously mm-hmm. so um so that was cool actually before they made it available through music box direct they made it uh available as a kind of theatrical you know rental you may remember but a lot of theaters in the yeah. early days of the pandemic were like you know just stream the movie through yeah. us like you you know like you would if you're like a new movie mm-hmm. so it was available that way for a week or two and then it became part of their music box direct streaming service also um before that we had put out a blu-ray mm. through a company called emphasis entertainment who also put out the uh, cool apocalypse dvd so we weren't solely self-distributing it because emphasis produced the blu-ray okay and was that you reached out to emphasis or with cool yeah apocalypse, with cool apocalypse i had reached out to them because they had they had distributed a dvd by a friend of mine i think and so uh i said hey would you be interested in putting this out and they said yes mm-hmm. so that was a really positive experience because um you know this was back when <laughs> dvds were a thing yeah and uh, i can see i'm holding your dvd copy of cool apocalypse right now this is a library yes. copy <laughs> that a library got rid of. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, uh, Emphasis is the kind of distributor that has relationships with libraries, mm-hmm. which is a huge source for, you know, um, a huge part of the, the physical media market. Mm-hmm. 
So, um, yeah, when Emphasis put out both Google Apocalypse and Mercury, you know, they had a certain, uh, they had relationships with uh, not only ret- uh, retailers, but also libraries. Mm-hmm. And so that, you know, we got into a lot of stores and a lot of libraries. Yeah. And can I ask abstractly without like getting into specific numbers about even more theoretically based on your experience with this film, putting it out on Amazon Vimeo, do you see that as a financially viable way to self-distribute? And I know it depends uh, on Jay, things, but... <laughs> uh, you know, everybody knows mm-hmm. you don't make shit from streaming. Yeah. Everybody knows that, mm-hmm. right? It's like pennies per hour. Mm-hmm. So um, even if your film is streamed, you know, a lot, you're making very, very, very little. Mm-hmm. Uh, I mean, this is why people are on strike right now, yeah. right? Because um, the streamers have all the power, mm-hmm. and they're not, you know, they're, they're not even revealing uh, what their viewing numbers are. Yeah. It's all abstract, mm-hmm. right? Like, they're they're not paying, you know, based on viewership numbers. They're they're kind of renting the the, the film to stream it for a certain amount of time. And no one's making any money. Mm, okay. Yeah, that's interesting. So that's why led you more towards the trying to keep it around in festivals. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I mean, that's kind of you know why mm-hmm. I uh, why I want to uh, keep it alive in theaters for as long as possible because a commercial theater will split the box office 50-50, mm-hmm. You know, and those are much better terms yeah. than you're going to get from you know a streaming website. Yeah. Absolutely. So I guess, yeah, just kind of last with this one, if someone watches, after they watch Mercury and Retrograde, besides your next works, which they'll get to next, what would you maybe recommend as like a next step in uh, a viewing journey of whether something else that inspired this movie or another filmmaker you think is... Uh, um, oh, you know what I just saw that I thought was terrific? I'm sure you've seen it, is uh, Waiting for the Light to Change. I haven't seen that. Yeah, I've heard of it. So that's a Chicago movie Mm -hmm. that she made in Michigan. Oh, yeah. Yeah. In a cabin Mm -hmm. (laughs) by the lake. (laughs) Yeah. It won Slam Dance. It won Slam Dance. And I I saw it actually. I gave it a four star review on Letterboxd. And I said, um, I said, the highest praise I can give this film is to say it's the best movie ever made about Chicagoans <laughs> vacationing <laughs> in a lakeside cabin. Yeah. Uh, because I was like, wow, this is so similar mm-hmm. to what I, you know, was trying to do. I think she did it better. Mm-hmm. You know, I think she did it better. Um, and I also think, you know what I hadn't seen at the time that I made Mercury, but I saw it since, is Joe Swanberg's Drinking Buddies. Mm-hmm. When I saw that, I was kind of amazed um, that there is a sort of segment in that film that is very similar to Mercury because uh, there's a scene where two couples do go on a vacation mm-hmm. to a cabin yeah. and uh, I think they end up kind of swapping partners, you know. Yeah, yeah. But that's only like a little slice out of the middle of the film. And I thought, oh man, I wish I had seen that at the time mm-hmm. because he kind of, again, he did it first and he did it better. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, you got more time with it. Exactly. <laughs> well, yeah, thank you so much again, Michael. We appreciate it. Hey, uh, thanks for having me. Yeah, it's thank been you. a blast.